Would you please stand as we read God's Word this morning before the sermon? We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now... Return to the shepherd and overseeing of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Josh Havman. I'm the executive pastor here at Grace. Some of you are really confused right now. Brooks is leaving. He's able to stand and he's not preaching. What's going on? Here's the thing. We're going to talk about this later this morning. Sometimes we have to lay down the thing that we want to do because God is calling us to do something else. We'll come back to that. We are continuing in our series in 1 Peter called Where Is Your Hope? And last week, Brooks talked about how we cannot place our hope in earthly governments. God has instituted those governments and governors at national levels, at state levels, at local levels to punish those who do wrong and praise those who do good. That is straight from 2 Peter. So we know that there is a purpose for, there is a purpose for government and there is a purpose for order in our society and governors, broadly speaking. But we can't put our hope there because all of those governments, all of those governors, doesn't matter which party, doesn't matter what platform, they are going to fail us because they're human. Because like us, they sin. They are going to choose themselves over what is right and good. And so we cannot put our hope there. We have seen time and again that those people, those systems will fail us. Even though that's the system that God has chosen to use, he has said, that is the system that has to be in place for this sinful world, but I have a better way and it is my son and it is following after my son and that's the eternal hope. So where is your hope? We're going to ask this question in a different way this week. We're going to ask, where is our hope amidst suffering? And you might think, now wait a minute, why suffering? Isn't it true that 1 Peter 2.18 reads this way, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In fact, I'm guessing if a number of you were to look at your Bibles right now, if you have a uh, printed text or you have a phone out, there's a, there's a subheading under, uh, right, right above actually, 218 that says something about servants and masters or masters and slaves. Why are we talking about suffering? Well, let's get some historical context here and some scriptural context here. So the context that you all need for the word servant 
as it appears in verse 18, is that this is talking about household staff. So yes, it is servants, but these are the sorts of servants that aren't necessarily owned. Okay, in Peter's day, when he's writing, there are all kinds of different servants. There are lots of people who would fall under that broad definition or that broad umbrella of being a servant. Some of them are owned. In other words, they are not their own. They are owned by somebody else. And some of them are simply staff. They just work at a place. There's not that connotation of ownership. And so the verse 18 word that we're looking at today is talking about what we might say is that lesser form of service that doesn't require you to be owned. So he is referring to anybody who is working in service to another person. Now, there are lots of references in the Gospels and in, um, in the epistles to owned slaves. In fact, Peter uses right back in verse 16, he uses that word in talking about our relationship to God. And ultimately, we're either owned by sin or owned by God. So it's not that he doesn't use this word ever. It's just in this passage that we're looking at today, he's talking about household servants. Why is that important? Because this passage, number one, does not imply that slavery is good or that people should keep slaves. Okay, not in the historical context, not in the modern context. Do not read this verse and understand that we should have slaves. That is a wrong reading of this verse. Anybody who has read it that way in the past is wrong. He is saying that we can apply this to our relationships where we have people over us. So he uses intentionally this lesser form of the service word to broaden the definition of what service looks like. So instead of reading this as uh, a separate unrelated example, I want you to think about what Brooks talked about last week in verses 13 through 17, where Peter is saying, look at, there are all kinds of earthly authorities. There are uh, kings and there are governors and there are emperors. And now I'm going to bring it down to a very small local level. There are the people that you report to on a daily basis. Okay. Your, your job, your work, your household. There are people over you on a daily basis. You don't even have to think about the king or go see the emperor. There are people that you have to be subject to. But Peter also moves on quickly from there to talk about suffering. If you look at the rest of this passage, verses 19 through 25, he stops talking about slaves and masters almost altogether right away and starts talking about suffering. Why? Why spend all these verses talking about our relationships with power structures and how we're supposed to obey and then start talking about suffering? Well, who's tried to obey in the past? Anybody? Was that a great experience for you? Was there any suffering in obedience? Ever experienced that? Ask my children. There's all kinds of suffering in obedience. They'll tell you right away. None of them are in here right now, so I can say that, right? Second service will be dicey. So it's true when we have to obey or when we choose to submit even, it's hard. And there is trouble. And Jesus said very clearly to his disciples, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. He also said, take courage, right? Because I have overcome the world. But he wants them to know He says, if they have persecuted me, if they have made me suffer, for sure they will make you suffer for following me. So we should expect when we are trying to obey, when we are putting ourselves into a system of governance, when we are submitting to those who are masters over us, that there's going to be suffering. So we're going to talk about this morning how it is a gracious thing, verse 19, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, but that that's not 
the whole story. Peter has other verses on either side of this that we need to understand for context. So ultimately, here's where he's driving at. That it is going to be hard, that you should expect to suffer, that if you enter into this life on a daily basis, you get up, you get out of bed, and you think everything should be great today, then you've got the wrong perspective, right? We should expect there will be suffering in this world. But we should also expect that when we have our mind stayed on God, that this is a gracious thing. So this is a difficult balance that we're going to try and strike this morning. But Peter does it, and he shows us how to do it. Here's how. He says there is justified suffering. In other words, there is suffering that you should expect. Suffering that happens when you do what is wrong. Right? When you do what is wrong, Peter's already told us there are people in place. God has put rulers in place to punish those who do wrong. That is suffering that's justified. You should expect that kind of suffering. But then he says, I want to clarify, it's not all like that. Sometimes we do what's right and we suffer anyway. And we would say that that's unjust. That that's not in keeping with justice as God would desire it. And then Peter is going to hold out Christ as our example. And he's going to say, here is your hope. Here is the hope that I want you to have. Jesus, yes, himself, but also what Jesus does. Because it's not just look at Jesus and just, it's magic. He says, no, Jesus does exactly what he's calling us to do. And so he has an example for us. He shows us how to live in this suffering. If it's true that people will persecute us because they persecuted Christ, it's also true. It's also true that if Jesus can endure and he says, I've given you my power, then we can endure if we're in him. So let's look to Christ, our example this morning. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would show us clearly what you would have us see from this text. Not because I'm speaking words, Lord, but because your Holy Spirit is moving in hearts. I ask, Lord, that you would give us clarity about what you would have us do with these words. Lord, help us to wrestle with them. I pray that they would weigh on us appropriately, that we would see who you are through this text, and we would long to know you more and live for you. I pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Justified suffering. First Peter 2.18. Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Peter knows that you will have unjust masters. He knows that you will have bosses that you don't like. My first summer out of high school, I worked on a concrete construction crew and uh, worked for a fairly um, undisciplined group of individuals, we'll say, to be charitable. And it was, it was difficult at times to work with them, but they did not lord it over me. And so it was a pretty decent experience, but I wanted to try something else. So the next summer I did the same thing, but with a different company. And they immediately put me with a very small crew, two other guys. And uh, one of them had gone to high school with me. He was only a couple years older than I was. And it was really hard to submit to him because I knew who he was. Because we were from the same place. We'd gone to the same high school. I knew he was not a great leader of men. He was only about two years older than I was. Just barely graduated, right, from high school. He was leading a construction crew. But it was hard for me to submit to him. In that relationship, in that hard, difficult relationship, God says, submit to this person. And it's not just that, right? That's a minor thing, really. Somebody who you don't really respect, someone who you think has more flaws than is deserving of following, but other areas too. In fact, so much so 
So much difficulty, Peter assumes, that there will be suffering. He says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures suffering while suffering unjustly. And then he brings the counterpoint. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it? If you endure during that circumstance. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So he says, listen, there is a time when you should expect to suffer and it's when you're doing wrong. If you sin and you receive punishment for sin, that's justified. If you're suffering because you're doing the wrong thing, you should not be surprised. In effect, Peter is saying this. Again, governors are sent by God to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. He said that last week. We we saw that in last week's text. He's saying there is objective good and objective evil. This is not something that we talk about as true in our culture today. Today we say things like, you can determine what's true. We make truth subjective. We make good and evil subjective. Maybe that's good for you. We say things like that. But Peter's saying, no, there is good and there is bad. There is right and there is wrong. And if you do what is wrong you will be punished. And if you do what is right, you will be praised. That's the system that's supposed to help maintain justice and order. So if you're suffering for doing what is wrong, that's justified. You should expect to suffer for doing what's wrong. If you're looking at your life and you're saying, why am I suffering? It's worth asking, am I being obedient or am I being disobedient? It's very possible that you are being obedient. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's also very possible that you're being disobedient. And that the suffering that you are enduring is because you've done wrong. We should clear something up here. You can be a sinner saved by grace. You can be saved eternally with Jesus and still suffer for doing what's wrong in this life. Ask yourself this. If any person here at this church, any person here at this church who identifies as a Christian, who says, I follow Jesus, and they drive 100 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone, any of you, And you get pulled over. How is the policeman going to receive this word from you? Hey, I'm saved by Jesus. I don't need any punishment. Don't make me suffer. They're not going to receive that. Right? You are still subject to punishment for doing wrong, even if you are saved. Now, that is not the same as condemnation. That's not the same as being eternally, eternally separated from God because of your sin. But God has set up a system, a world, where there is right and there is wrong. And if you do wrong, you should expect to be punished for it. In fact, and we'll talk about this in a minute too, it's necessary for us to maintain this system. Even among those who have confessed their sins, even among those who have been brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus, it's necessary that we also continue to maintain a justice system that helps our whole world. So, Even if somebody has uh, confessed their sins and they've accepted Jesus, if they're a murderer, it's likely that they need to be in prison and possibly punished to death. That doesn't mean their soul, right, is at stake because they've given their soul to Jesus. But order is necessary. Maintaining justice is necessary. So this system, Peter says, is in place. Governors are sent by God to punish those who do evil to praise those who do good. If you have done what is wrong, you should expect to suffer for it. But what if you haven't? What if when you do good, you suffer for it? He says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If you are mindful of God and you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly, 
this is a gracious thing. This is filled with grace. This is not what the world sees. When the world experiences a perceived injustice, they rant and they rave. When people feel like they have done good and they're being punished wrongly for it, they let everybody know. And Peter is saying, don't be like that. He's saying, if you are suffering, even though you have done what is good, that is suffering due to injustice. That is suffering that is unjust or wrong, given your right actions. But, but, he says, this is a gracious thing. How can this be a gracious thing? How can it be good to just lay down and just to be calm and be quiet when you're doing the right thing and you're suffering because of that? How can that be a good thing? How can it not be the right thing in that moment to stand up and demand your rights? Isn't that what we want to do? If we know that we've done good, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know we've done the right thing and we are still suffering for it. Don't we want to stand up and wave our flag and say, look at me, I've done the right thing. Don't make me suffer. Of course we do. Of course we want to defend ourselves. But Peter is telling us that it is actually a gracious thing to just endure those sorrows while suffering unjustly. How can that be? How could we do that? That seems impossible. If we're doing what is wrong, we expect to suffer. If we do what is right, we may also suffer. God's calling for us to suffer amidst injustice. Where are we going to find hope in that suffering? Where are we going to find hope in the suffering that comes when we've done absolutely nothing wrong? When somebody that you love is stricken with an uncurable illness. When somebody that you love is taken from you instantly in a car crash or by a national, uh, natural disaster, right? What are we going to do with those kinds of suffering? Because those kinds of suffering are real and constant things that have nothing to do with our actions because we live in a fallen world because sin has corrupted this world. We are going to experience those kinds of suffering as well. So where do we find hope in that suffering? That's what Peter is interested in, in this passage. He says, I want you to look at Jesus. Peter walks with Jesus. Peter is following Jesus. We know that Peter has a wife almost entirely from a passage in the Gospels where we hear that Jesus goes to Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. We didn't even know that Peter had a wife. All of a sudden he's got a mother-in-law? Guys, fast. (laughs) And she's dying. And there's no indication in scripture that Peter or his wife or his mother-in-law has done anything to deserve this. And what are we supposed to do with that? How do we deal with that kind of suffering? Here's the example from Jesus. He suffers for us. 1 Peter 2.20 says, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. That's a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then verse 21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, if you know that story, you know that Jesus came into the home and he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and she rose from the dead. Uh, She didn't, I'm sorry, she didn't rise from the dead. She rose from the bed, and she was healed. (laughs) He did rise people from the dead. It's in there. You should read it. (laughs) But she rose from the bed and began to serve the people in the house, and That was a healing, right? That was a good thing. But Jesus still suffers in that moment because he knows that that's only temporary. 
He knows the same thing with Lazarus. He knows that this is why what his disciples don't need is for him to rule right then. He, he knows that they don't need for him to institute uh, a government of Israel over the Roman Empire right at that moment. What they need is the salvation of their souls. And so he says, let me show you what this looks like. I'm going to suffer alongside of you. So he enters into their grief. When Jesus is tempted, when he is called and baptized, and then he goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted, he is suffering in all of the ways that we are also suffering. He is tempted by the desires of his body and by the desires of his mind. He's tempted by the pride of this life, all of the ways that we are tempted. And he suffers in the way that we are suffered to show us that he is worth following as a leader. So this is Christ's example. He shows us how to suffer. He suffers alongside of us. He commits no sin. His example is perfect. There's no deceit found in his mouth. When he's reviled, he doesn't revile in return. When he suffers, he doesn't threaten, but he continues entrusting himself to God who judges justly. So he knows that God is the true judge. What, is, what does that have to do with anything? Why does that enter in here? Because remember Peter has previously just talked about, he's previously just said that we need to honor the kings and the emperors of this world. But Peter also knows that the kings and the emperors of this world will fail us. So Christ's example here is to entrust ourselves to the true judge. God is establishing and maintaining justice in this world through those systems. That's why he wants us to honor those systems. But he is ultimately the true judge. And so when somebody comes into our life and they speak bad of us, we can speak bad of them. That's an option. But it's not the right option. Christ says, the right option, let me show you, is to not revile in return. And when we are suffering due to external pressures, we can threaten, right? We can act out in violence. We can try to demand our right and take what is ours. But Jesus says, no, I'm not going to threaten. I'm going to show you that you can trust God who judges justly. Jesus trusts God who judges justly all the way to death and then through death, and then into resurrection. That's how far Jesus trusts the Heavenly Father. And it means everlasting life for him and for us. So we can know that God is the true judge. That helps us to follow Christ's example, because that's what Jesus believes. But that does maybe raise a question. What about, what about this? What if I'm being abused? What if it's not just a matter of this person is speaking ill of me, right? They're, they're tarnishing my reputation. But what if they are actually harming me? What about that suffering? Because often the people who are harming us are close to us. And often the people who are harming us are supposed to love us. And so it's not just a matter of making us feel bad. It's serious, deep injury that happens in abuse. What about that? How can I know that God is a true judge, and just be okay with that. Understand that God desires justice. I said earlier that it's important that we maintain, that we keep these civil systems 
because God has used those systems. He wants to use those systems to establish and maintain justice. He puts authorities and governors in place so that the weak can seek justice against the strong who abuse them. 1 Peter 2.14 is that verse about putting governors, putting authorities in place to punish those who do wrong and praise those who do right. Understand that if you read the Old Testament, if you go through the story of Israel and who they were as a people, God is often, often calling them out on their inability to execute justice. He says it is so very important for you to establish and maintain justice for those people who cannot establish and maintain it for themselves. And he uses often this example of orphans and widows. He says orphans and widows are examples of people who cannot who cannot establish and maintain justice for themselves. So you, church, right? You, Israel, in the case of the Old Testament, have to do this. You have to make sure that there is justice for them. And this is true in situations of abuse. If there are people that you know who are being abused, you have to help. There are order uh, options of, for order and justice that we have to employ and, re- and refer them to because we cannot let those people continue to be abused. So when it says that we should endure in suffering, right? When, this, when the text here says in this passage, endure in suffering, that's a gracious thing. It does not mean that you just reject justice and that you just forget about the fact that God desires justice and that you just endure abuse and endure abuse and endure abuse. That is not what the text is saying. God desires justice. He wants there to be justice. So if you are experiencing abuse, seek justice. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to us and let us help you seek justice. Because God does not desire for you to be abused. He does, he does say expect to suffer. But everyone, everyone must expect to suffer because of sin in this world. Do not buy into the lie that because you're being abused that somehow that that's exactly what God desires for you. No, he desires justice. In a similar way, in a similar way, to being abused by outsiders, we tend to abuse ourselves. We tend to say to ourselves, I have to do this salvation thing. I can't rely on God because I have to save myself. But here's what 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 say. Jesus, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For we were straying like sheep, but have returned now to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Where do we find hope amidst the suffering of feeling like we have to do something about this situation that we're in? We look to Jesus, who bore our sins, who saved our souls. Salvation does not depend on us. If it depended on us, we'd all fail. Because so much depends on us and we fail. How many of you have tried to put your pants on and almost fallen over and smacked your head on the floor? Anybody done that? If we are incapable of doing that, are we capable of saving ourselves eternally? No, we are frail. We are dust. And Jesus knows this. And so he says, I will save you. Our hope in suffering 
is in knowing that Jesus suffered for us and that he does what he asks us to do. I've said this many times when I've had the opportunity to speak, but this is the best kind of leader, the person who does exactly what they ask you to do. I told you that I worked on one construction crew for one company with a guy who was just a little bit older than me. And then I worked on another one with the same company, right? But with somebody who knew how to lead and he did the things that he asked his team to do. And it made all the difference. And it makes all the difference with Jesus. Imagine Jesus coming onto the scene and just being strong. That's all he does. If you read Revelation, Jesus comes, um, and the, the picture of Jesus is a man on a white horse with a sword, and there's blood, and there's destruction, and he's a conquering king. And that is what Jesus does. But if you read the Gospels, it is also true that what Jesus does is he comes and he lays down his life for us. And that's what he asks us to do. If he came and he said, I want you all to get your own horse and your own sword and go out and be the king, we would all fail. We couldn't do that. Again, we can't do many basic things in our own life. But instead he says, do what I have done, just as I have suffered for you. Suffer along with me for the sake of those around you. Not just because suffering is a good thing, but because it's going to bring other people to me. Because you're going to have suffering in this sinful world anyway. By the way, why is there sin? Because we chose it. Because we choose ourselves again and again. Given the opportunity, we choose ourselves. Given the opportunity, Brooks would be up here right now. And he did not pay me to say this. But he has chosen to let other people speak because he knows that it is beneficial for him. It's beneficial for you. It's beneficial for me to get the opportunity to share with you. He could demand his right, but he chooses not to. This is following after Jesus. Jesus is always allowing others, pushing others forward, saying, I will suffer, show you how to suffer, together we'll bring people to me. God, the true judge, establishes and maintains justice. This is our hope in suffering. Because while it's true that we want to maintain those systems of justice in the world, they're going to fail us. Just like Brooke said last week, we can't put our ultimate hope in any of those systems because they will fail. Right and left, conservative and liberal, they're going to fail us. So we need a better hope. And so we have to put our hope in the true judge who establishes and maintains justice. That's going to help us get through suffering. We can, we can stop trying to save ourselves because salvation does not depend on us. When we are suffering, it adds to our suffering. It compounds our suffering if we think that we have to dig ourselves out of the hole. If we know that salvation does not depend on us, we can begin to have hope. So all of these things I have said to you these are all here in First Peter. But again, I said to you that Peter was the one who walked with Jesus. Peter was one who lived alongside of Jesus. And Peter was one who saw Jesus do something and heard him say something that's also important here, which is this, that you have to be a servant. So even though, even though this passage in First Peter starts with this servants be subject to your masters, right? Even though he starts there, Uh, He goes into suffering. Peter is always keeping this in the back of his mind because he knew, he knew what it ultimately meant to follow Jesus. And ultimately what it meant to follow Jesus was to be a servant. Brooks talked about this um, last week. He said, he said, this is the ideal. This is the idea that Jesus has in mind of what it means to follow him, to be a servant of all. So let's go back there 
and let's read Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Remember the context here for this passage. James and John are walking with Jesus. And they have sought to be the best, the greatest. In fact, I think their mother advocates for them. Imagine this, right? Your mom shows up at work, guys, and she says to your boss, hey, could you promote my son? That's kind of what happens here. And Jesus says, Jesus says, no, you don't understand. Listen, you know the Gentiles are going to lord it over each other when they rule. And their great ones are going to exercise authority over them. But it can't be this way. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, follow me. Do the thing that I'm doing. Here's the thing that I'm doing. I'm going to lay down my life for you. There's no greater love that you can have for your brothers and sisters than to lay down your life for them, for your husband and wife. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, husbands and wives. And there's a lot tied up in there. And Brooks gets to handle that. I'm going to step down. But the essence of that passage and the essence of this passage is trust in the Lord. Look to the example that he set and follow that example. This is what it means to be a disciple. Not just to read the words of Jesus, not just to come and hear the words of Jesus, but to do the things that Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit in the same way that Jesus did them. So even as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that's what we're called to do. That's how we endure suffering. That's how we find hope in suffering is when we do what Jesus did. Lay down our lives for each other. This morning, uh, we're going to have communion. And the worship team is going to sing here and the ushers are going to come forward and they're going to start passing out the elements. All of you are suffering. All of you are suffering. How are you going to endure in that suffering? Are you going to demand your rights? Or are you going to serve as Jesus served? Ask yourself that question as the worship team sings now.